Hi everyone and welcome to episode 9 of Through the Eyes of Joey. Uh, Today on this podcast, I will be taking you, my dear family and friends, on a journey back in time to a location where a lot of wild and wonderful life events took place, Chicago. Chicago, that toddling town. Um, you know, Chicago has some great music. Oh my gosh. I would love to incorporate music into my podcast, but for now, I think I'll just kind of keep it on a talky level. Um, okay. So last time on episode eight, we were talking about Helen's police career, her history of the career and just general cases. Um, and we also, I also talked to you guys about, mm, timelines and stories and and Joey was talking about in her text how her parents wanted her to present their family and home life situation that when she came home from living in the convent uh, house for kids that uh, she was about six years old six almost seven um, that she six I guess she was groomed to to understand that her mother really couldn't be a police officer and be married and have kids. And as I pointed out in the last episode, that clearly was not the case. So as part of a recap, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was I had received a very interesting email from a woman by the name of Georgia Bowden Duncan. Georgia Bowden is uh, a lady who would be, okay, let me see, my grandfather, Michael, Michael Bowden, he had a nephew, George K. Bowden. George had a son, John Bowden. John was um, pretty much in age close to Joey, my mother, even though George and Joey would be cousins. So John was a second cousin to my mother. John had a daughter named Georgia. So that's who Georgia is in this relationship, in this family tree. And she sent me an email the other day after listening to, well, she went I guess all the way up to episode seven. And she had some questions about what she had heard with respect to all of the the kids that Michael Bowden and Helen had and their outcomes. It's a very lengthy email. And her questions were basically things about what is death by artificial feeding? Because one of the death certificates, the cause of death was one, malnutrition, and two, artificial feeding. And so I told her um, I would answer those questions. She has about seven or eight questions. If I have time, I just want to tell you, I want to read to you her email to me and tell you that Georgia has done a lot of ancestry research for our family on the Bowden side. And she's a wonderful resource for facts and time frames and who was what and who was who. So if when I get done with this podcast, I still have some space and time 
to read you her email and then read you my responses to her email, I think that would be really, it's going to be key for you to understand some things more about the Bowden family. She, um, <clears throat> if I don't have enough time, I just want to tell you that I will definitely present it in episode 10. There were some things, though, in episode 8 with respect to Helen's police career and some some historical notes that I think I wanted to touch upon a little bit more than I did in the last episode. I had to skate through pretty quickly. There's a lot of material here, so I wanted to circle back around on some points. One of the points I want to circle back around on is I was talking about the time frames uh, with Michael and Helen Bowden and how they moved a lot. I had made a statement that I listened to after I recorded the podcast, and I didn't really care for it. My statement was, I said, they moved almost every year after the death of every child, which sounded like they lost a child every year. And that's not the way it was at all. And so I want to clarify that and correct my um, my misspeaking on that point. So to uh, clear the record here and, and make it un- more understandable, when I'm talking about how much they moved, and we also know when I was reading Joey's testimony, she said that they moved a lot, even before Helen's police career. We also know that when Helen was an active police officer, she was getting threats. People would call the house, they knew who Joey was, you know, if your mom doesn't back off, there's going to be a bombing at your door. Clearly, We know that they probably had to move sometimes because just to keep things safe um, and keep their daughter safe. But what I'd like to point out is that there were, there is a pattern of moving like my mother had noticed that was before Helen was even in the police career. So what would be the purpose for that, I don't know. So I'm just going to give you an address chronology timeline, and I'll read it to you. And that way you you can glean from it what you want, but it sets the background for maybe why Joey mentions that and what I'm seeing myself as I'm connecting dots and putting timelines together. A lot of doing this is about trying to discover the things we don't know about Helen Egan and Michael Bowden, where they met, things of that nature, because these were details of their life that they never shared with their own children. Even if Joey would ask, they would not talk about it. So here's, I'll just read to you the start of what I can see is leading up to the two of them meeting. Sometime around uh, 1895, well, let's 1893, Helen Bowden is, Helen Egan, I'm sorry, Helen Egan is uh, living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 1893. In the same year, Michael Bowden is living in Flandreau, Moody, South Dakota. So he's there, he's 19 years old. Helen is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She's 11 years old. 1895, Helen Egan, still living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 
1895, Michael Bowden is living in Flandreau, Moody, South Dakota, because this year, his first daughter, Margaret Grace Bowden, is born. 1898, Helen Egan is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She's 16 years old. Michael James Bowden is 24 years old. He has now moved out of Flandreau, Moody, South Dakota. He's 24. He moves to St. Peter, Minnesota with his first wife, Margaret Mead, and their two children. 1900, Helen Egan is living at 416 5th Avenue, West Cedar Rapids, Iowa. This is the Egan family home. She's 18 years old. Michael James Bowden is now living no longer with his first wife, Margaret Mead, or his two little girls. Between the point of 1898 and being in St. Peter, Minnesota, and 1900, he's on a federal census and showing up living at a boarding house in Hendricks, Mackinac, Michigan. He's listed as a barber, and he's 26 years old. So he's now in Michigan, and Helen is 18 years old and still living with her family. 1904, Helen Egan is still living at 416 Fifth Avenue West at the Egan family home. At this time, I don't know where Michael James Bowden is. I can't find him. 1906, Joey mentions in her text that her mother, her mother, Helen, and her father might have met, quote, in Wisconsin or Michigan. Okay, well, we know he was, in fact, in Michigan in 1900 when he left his first wife and two daughters. So that's, that's, a, that's a plus. Um, and then she says, Wisconsin. Well, there's a Dr. Chase Egan in the family. He's a physician. He lives in Racine, Wisconsin. And it is quite possible that Helen Egan received some training, nursing training there with Dr. Chase Egan, who's a member of her family. And maybe, maybe they met each other, Michael, James Bowden, my grandfather, and my grandmother, Helen Egan, maybe they met each other in Wisconsin during this point of convergence where she's maybe getting some nursing training and um, Michael is, is living there in Wisconsin. So that's what we know. 1906. Uh, 1906, Helen's address is unknown. We do know, though, that in 1906, that same year, Michael James Bowden is living at 314 Fifth Avenue, Milwaukee County, Wisconsin. He's listed as a barber now. So in Michigan, he was a barber at 26 years old. And now in 1906, six years later, he's still a barber. And that is consistent with the story that everyone tells and Joey does about him being a barber. Uh, in 1907, uh, we tie in Helen's obituary from 1966, which reads that she was married, quote, married in 1907 to Michael Bowden, end quote. So 1907 is a marked year. This is when they got married. Both Helen Egan's address is unknown in 1907, and Michael James Bowden's address is unknown in 1907. Still working on it. 1908. Now, 
Michael and Helen pop up together. They pop up together and they are at 216 Warren Jackson Boulevard, Chicago Ridge, Cook County, Illinois. And it's at this time that child number one, Margaret Ann Bowden, is born. Um, 6 1908 and she dies uh, 11 1908 She's five months old. The uh, death certificate states the immediate cause of death is bronchopneumonia. Contributing cause and complications is diarrhea and entritis. Now, if Helen Egan was working at the psychiatric ward on graveyard shifts, as Joey had indicated, her mother's area of nursing, right, and shifts that she took in the early days were graveyard, then Helen could not really be able to breastfeed when the baby woke up during the night for a feeding. So now we know that Michael James Bowden was then caring for the infants during the evening and overnight hours when Helen was a nurse in the psychiatric ward and working graveyard. The death certificate on baby Margaret Bowden uh, states that Helen Egan is born in Iowa. 1909, one year later, they're no longer at Warren Jackson Boulevard. Michael and, and Helen are at 1608 Park Avenue, Cook County, Chicago. Child number two, Mary Jean Bowden, is born on 10-25-1909. This address is pulled from the baptismal record from St. Durla Church, located at Jackson Boulevard. Interestingly, I want to share with you that Mary Bowden's ethnicity is deliberately noted as, quote, Canadian on her birth documents. Canadian. Why? 1910, one year later, they are no longer living at Park Avenue. They are now at, and this is different, Helen Egan is listed at 1329 Loomis Street, Chicago, Ward 20, Cook County. She's listed uh, on the census as a trained nurse, and she's a lodger at this address. Michael James Bowden, his address is unknown. He's not living uh, with uh, Helen. Mary Bowden, remember, was born the year before. Okay, She's not showing up anywhere. Address unknown. She's not living with Helen. I can't find out where Michael is. Is the baby living with Michael? I don't know. Uh, 1911, one year later, they are no longer living at Loomis Street. They are now both back together, living at 1505 West Adams Street, Cook County, Chicago. Child number three, Bernice Mary Bowden is born on June 10th, 1911, and dies October 10th, 1911, at four months of age. She's buried, and there is a document at St. Boniface's Cemetery on uh, October 12th, 1911. The death certificate states cause of death is gastroenteritis. Now, once again, if Helen Egan was working at the psychiatric ward on graveyard shifts, as Joey's indicated, then, which was her mother's area of nursing, then Helen could not be able to breastfeed, breastfeed when the baby woke up during the night or in the early evening hours for feeding. And so we know Michael James Bowden, my grandfather's, and caring for these infants during the evening and overnight hours. Now, Helen Egan has spelled her last name on the death certificate as Eggins, E-G-G-I-N-S. Why? 
The death certificate shows that Helen is born in Iowa. One year later, 1912, Helen and Michael, their address is unknown. 1913, Helen and Michael's address is unknown. Child number four is, there's a birth of a male, Bowden. No first name is given, no death is noted, but there was a Douglas Bowden on the 1920 federal census that stated he was seven years old in 1920. This would mean that he was born in 1913. This would correlate to this unknown child number four that was born with no first name, just Bowden. 1914, one year later, Helen and Michael Bowden are no, live, no longer living at West Adams that we have our last trail, which was 1911. They are now living at 1758 West Trey Street. Child number five is born at this time, the birth of Patrick David Bowden on June 15, 1914. 1915, Helen and Michael James Bowden are still at 1758 West Trey Street, Cook County, Chicago. Child number six, birth of Clara Bowden is born on um, September 15, 1915. Clara's ethnicity is deliberately noted as, quote, Canadian again, on the birth documents, like on their other daughter, Mary Bowden. Why? 1916, January. Helen and Michael Bowden are still at 1758 West Trey Street, Cook, Chicago. Child number five, Patrick David Bowden, dies January 3rd, 1916. Burial is on January 4th at St. Boniface's Cemetery. The death certificate states cause of death as lobar pneumonia. He had it for 11 days. And once again, we know that if Helen is working indeed at the psychiatric ward as graveyard shifts as she's doing, Michael James Bowden is having to care for these infants when she goes to work and all through the night if there's a feeding. There's no breastfeeding going on, so he's having to give milk to the baby. Now, the death certificate shows Helen is born in Iowa and her maiden name is Egan. However, the death certificate is noted that the parents are lifelong residents of Chicago because it asks that question, how long have you lived here? It says lifelong. Why? It, you know. Um, so what, what can we say about that? I don't know. Maybe it was just a mistake. 1916, April of 1916. This is months later. Helen Egan and Michael James Bowden no longer live at 1758 West Trey. This is after David, Patrick David passes away. They're now living at 1655 Jackson Boulevard, Cook County, Chicago. Child number six, Clara Bowden, dies at 9 p.m. on April 10, 1916, at Cook County Hospital, where Ellen had said at some point she had worked as a nurse. Was she working there then? The baby lives for six months and 24 days. Burial is on April 11th at St. Boniface's Cemetery. The death certificate states the cause of death as malnutrition and artificial feeding sustained for uh, two, like two days, no, two months and 10 days. Okay, so the baby is six months old, but they've been having to deal with this issue of malnutrition 
and for two months and 10 days. At the bottom of the death certificate, written in a very tiny area, it says gastroenteritis. And it looks like it says, it's written H2O slash MO, which is also could be the, um, maybe a sign of dehydration, which does occur with things like Shigella and other bacteria that causes a profuse amounts of diarrhea, the baby will get dehydrated. And it is beginning to look like they're having to deal with Shigella. And once again, if Helen is working and she has graveyard shifts, Michael is having to care for these babies uh, during the graveyard. Now on this death certificate, Helen Egan Bowden has spelled her last name for the death certificate as Egan, E-G-A-N. The death certificate shows Helen is now born in, for the first time, Spokane, Washington. Now this is 1916, right? She's not a cop. She hasn't put in her application for the police force. I don't even know if she's decided she wants to become a police officer in 1916. So if the story from Joey, as she writes, states that my mother put on her birth certificate that she was born in Spokane, Washington, because she wanted to lie about her age, and that was the furthest state she could find, that the police would probably not try to get a valid birth certificate, then why is she saying Spokane, Washington on this death certificate? Well, before she's even becoming a police officer. So I found that an inconsistent bit of fact, which doesn't correlate to what Joey Bowden's story is. 1917, Helen and Michael's address is unknown. Rose Christine Bowden is born on June 8th, 1917. She dies on September 10th, 1917. The baby lived for three months, two days. She's buried at St. Boniface's Cemetery, buried on the 11th of uh, September. The death certificate states mother uh, is Helen Egan, and she's born in Iowa. Father is now M.J. Bowden. 1918, Helen and Michael Bowden are at 1549 Ogden Avenue, Cook County, Chicago. This address was obtained from a registration ID card that Michael James Bowden filled out. 1919, he and Helen Bowden, address unknown. I can't confirm it. 1920, he and Helen Bowden now live no longer at Ogden Avenue. They're at 516 Levitt Street, Ward 18, Cook. Daughter Mary Bowden and son Douglas are listed as living there. Mary is listed in residence for the first time since Mary was born in 1909. So, significant. Where's Mary been? 1921. Uh, Helen and Michael. I don't have a consistent address for them at this time. Joey Bowden is born 4-22-1921. She's not listed as living with Helen or Michael James Bowden in residence until 1928. So that just that is consistent with the story that Joey Bowden was born and did not come home. She was at the convent house for children uh, until she was about six years old, five or six. 1922, I don't have an address for Helen and Michael Bowden. 1923, I don't have an address. 1924, 516 South Levitt Street. That means since 1920, 
They're still there in 1924. But remember, they don't have Mary Bowden living there. Joey Bowden is not living there. Douglas Bowden is not living there. And no other child is alive and with them. So for the six, seven, the six kids that had died, the one who I can't find out where he went, and the two surviving girls, if you do the math, at six, seven, eight, nine, um, not any of the children are alive or even living with them in 1924. 1925, address is unknown. 1926, address is unknown. 1927, address is unknown. 1928, Helen and Joey Bowden are uh, shown as living at 3309 Ainsley Street, Cook County, Chicago. Joey's home now. So she's, she's come home. She's living in residence now. Michael James Bowden, he's not living there with them. This is when they separated. Uh, His address, though, is unknown. Mary Bowden, the oldest daughter, she's in Hollywood. 1929. Helen and Michael James Bowden and Joey are all now living together at 3309 Ainsley Street, Cook County, Chicago. Mary Bowden, their oldest daughter, is in Hollywood. 1930. Helen and Joey are showing again as living alone at 3309 Ainsley Street, Cook County, Chicago. Michael James Bowden is once again not living with them. So they've, 1928 he wasn't, 1929 he was, 1930, even though they've stayed at Ainsley Street, he's now residing at 2346 Wilson Avenue, Cook County, Illinois. He is uh, a lodger, and uh, he works for the postal. He's a postal clerk. He works at the post office, and the date of birth is consistent with his. From 1931, 32, 33, and 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, their addresses are unknown. I do know Mary Bowden is in Hollywood or getting married to George Garcia in 1934. 1940, Joey's not living with either parent in 1940. She should be. She's a senior in high school, but she's not. She's not at Sullivan High. I can find no record that she ever attended San Diego High School. She was actually living in San Diego with her older sister, Mary Bowden. Why she went there in her senior year, why she left high school, why she went to San Diego to be with her sister, I don't know. Helen Bowden, though, is listed in 1940 while Joey is not there and living in San Diego with her sister. Helen is living at a house of the Good Shepherd. She is taking residence there. She's listed now as Helen Egan, not Helen Bowden, born in Iowa. And she's listed as a nun. Joey is not living, like I said, in her senior year with either her father or her mother. Michael James Bowden is living at 40 Lakewood Avenue, Cook County, Chicago. 1941. Helen and Michael James Bowden are back together. They're now living at 1005 North Wells Street, 
Cook County, Chicago. Joey Bowden has moved from 1215 Lodi Place in Hollywood, California to 2424 Hillgard Avenue in Berkeley, California, where she is living with Mary Bowden Garcia, her oldest sister, and her brother-in-law, George Garcia. I don't know why she's living in Berkeley. She never told me that story. Um, she always just said she went to San Diego to go to San Diego High School, live with her sister, and then from there she went directly to Hollywood. But that is not the case. 1942, Helen's address is unknown. Michael James Bowden is living at 1104 Belden Avenue, Cook County, Chicago. Mary and Joey are went from Hollywood to Berkeley together. So they're, they're living in Berkeley. 1943, Helen Egan's address, Helen Egan Bowden's address is unknown. And Michael James Bowden, his address is unknown. Joey is living in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Studio Club. And uh, she just has pulled out 1943, uh, June, uh, they pulled a, uh, a license to get married, my father and my mother. And they were married on June 5th, 1943. Mary Bowden is married to George Garcia. 1944, Helen and Michael James Bowden. I have no addresses for. 1945, I do not have Helen's address. This is the year that Michael James Bowden passes away of a heart attack. He's in his 60s. 1946 to 1965 is specifically related to Helen Egan Bowden. I have no address for her. I haven't been able to work that yet. But in 1966, her obituary says before she went to Elgin State Hospital and was placed there for elderly care, she was living at 1122 Loyola Avenue in Cook County, Chicago. So there it is. That's the final. I wanted to share that with you because I wanted you to be able to visualize just how much they moved when they did move. Okay, thanks for listening to that. I hope that kind of clears up my comment of they moved every year after a child died. That's not true, but they were moving a lot. Um, the next thing I want to recap is Joey was writing about how Helen had gotten kind of demoted when she opened up her mouth or said something maybe about corruption or sexual harassment or something she saw or she didn't like. There is a copy of a letter for a historical note here. Uh, it is dated September 22nd, 1930. It's um, sent to the commissioner, John H. Alcock, City Hall, Chicago, Illinois. Dear Commissioner, it's this is the letter. I'm writing this in the interest of Mrs. Helen Bowden, police officer, one of your who is one of your police women who is at present working out of the Fillmore station. Ms. Bowden desires to return to her previous work in the Missing Persons Bureau. I know from personal dealings with her that she has done very valuable work in locating missing girls. I shall consider it a very great favor if you can possibly restore her to her previous position where she may continue the work for which she seems particularly adapted. With kindest personal regards, very sincerely yours, Reverend D.F. Cunningham, Superintendent. Historical note, Father Cunningham uh, was he was known as a Monsignor, but he was a superintendent of the Chicago Roman Catholic Archdiocese school system from 1927 to 1957. 
uh, he had, um, he, he died at the age of 93. But during his tenure as a Catholic school superintendent in Chicago, he presided over the growth of the parochial school system. It was one of the largest in the world. And um, the system included Chicago and many suburbs. So Helen Bowden actually knew him. Um, And so during those 30 years, um, a lot of things happened, you know, a time of lower birth rates and other demographic changes. Uh, He was, he was, really the mover and shaker of, of, this, of this whole system. And in 1938, Father Cunningham was named a, a papal chamberlain and a monsignor in honor of his work as a superintendent. He was born in Chicago. He grew up in the Bridgeport neighborhood on the south side, not far from the home of the late mayor, uh, Richard Daly. He attended the elementary school, Catholic school there, the um, St. Ignatius High School, Loyola University, and he went to St. Ignatius College. And then he became a priest at St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore. Uh, once again, Baltimore comes up, and he was ordained in 1921. And in 1946, while still a school superintendent, he was named pastor of St. Angela Catholic Church. That's a post he held until 1968 when he became pastor emeritus. So this is the fellow who wrote this letter on behalf of, you know, for Helen Bowden saying, hey, can you move her and put her back where she was? So that's evidence perhaps that she was demoted or moved around if she, you know, they wanted to move her someplace where they could make her a little bit more quiet. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about was recapping what I talked about with the political things, the historical notes. You remember Joey in her writings was talking about um, how it seemed to be a very interesting system there with the Democrat and Republican stuff and William Hale Thompson and how he was a noted Republican. And yet, uh, upon further analysis, we begin to realize he was part of a very kind of corrupt system she said she could see that there was a lot of political corruption or indecency, quote, unquote. And uh, that's when she mentioned that her mother had been put off and put down and put away and uh, made quiet somewhere in another quieter station. But she said, quote, she talked, the, her mother, Helen, talked about the Kelly Nash machine and how corrupt it was. Well, in the last episode, I didn't really tell you what the Kelly Nash machine was. And so I want to just talk about that a little bit because it ties into something that's going to become a part of another episode. The Kelly Nash machine dominated Chicago um, from about 1933 to 1947. And this machine, as they called it, I love the political machines. It was as a result of the fatal shooting of Mayor Anton Cermak. Joey Bowden had talked about. And um, Cermak was an ally to and with uh, Patrick Nash. But Patrick Nash, after Anton Cermak, the mayor, was, as they say, assassinated, he orchestrated to the appointment of an Edward J. Kelly. And you'll have to remember this because Edward J. Kelly was a chief engineer of the sanitary district in Chicago. And he completed... Anton Sermock's term. But because of this, 
They, these two guys, Nash and Cook, they had Kelly and Kelly Nash machine. They kind of shared this mm, powerful political organization movement in Chicago. And it stayed that way until Nash's death in 1943. So he always remained in the background, you know, praising and punishing machine members and kind of taking control over the party. But Kelly's term as mayor was filled with controversy. Gambling, organized crime, ran rampant with like very little mayoral concern. But with Kelly, he had views on race, especially related to housing, that led some party leaders to eventually not like him very much and say, you know, this guy's a liability. But the very machine that he and Nash had nurtured, unfortunately, because of all of this, had forced Kelly's retirement from politics in 1947. So that's the Kelly Nash political machine that Joey was alluding to when she was talking about how her mother would talk about the corruption she had to deal with uh, in, the, um, in the administration and in the Chicago governmental uh, offices. Now, she also talked about, Joey did, she says, quote, speaking of being a mayor, everyone thought that the assassination of Chicago Mayor Cermak was a mistake, that the bullet was meant for FDR. They claimed, quote, no way. Cermak was the target. So much, she said, for being mayor in Chicago. The historical note on that is Anton Cermak is very interesting. His, how he came up and through the ranks to rise to this level of being able to have this kind of office. Our, my father's family, the Sobel family, are Hungarian. They're immigrants. They came here in the late 1800s. And uh, so they were a part of the Hungarian immigrant community. Well, Anton Cermak was Hungarian. Um, He was actually the 44th mayor of Chicago. He, he got to become mayor, but he was born to a mining family in Kladno, Austria, Hungary, which is where our Sobel family is from. He immigrated with his parents in 1874, which was a, pretty much around the time when Chaim Sobel was coming here with his family. And he went into coal mining. He labored at the coal mines at uh, Will in, in uh, Grundy counties. And he moved to Chicago at 16 years of age. He became a tow boy for horse-drawn carriages for the streetcar line. And then he tended to the uh, horses in the stables. But he saved his money and he bought a horse and a cart and he started selling firewood in Chicago. So he was one of those peddlers, you know, with the, with the horse-drawn car- carts. But he moved his way up. He wanted to be something. And uh, he became a part of municipal government by becoming a clerk in the city police court. He began to avail himself of business opportunities. And he started to buy real estate. He got into insurance and banking. And then he got aligned with the Democratic Party. And he became a precinct captain. And in 1902, he was elected to the House of Representatives. But he had a mayoral victory that came in the wake of the Depression. And there was deep resentment that many Chicagoans had of prohibition 
and the increasing violence around the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So these ethnic groups, the Czechs, the Poles, the Ukrainians, the Jews, the Italians, they began to settle in Chicago in the early 1900s, and they felt really underrepresented in Chicago's political system. Mostly Irish, right? Right. They had a real stronghold in Chicago. So this Anton Cermak, he's an immigrant himself. So he represented an underrepresented and marginalized community. And this actually got all these disenfranchised ethnicities to step up and become a robust band of voters. They had a large power base now running for Cermak. And he, he, he was going to run against basically Irish Americans. But, you know, I told you about that old saying, you know, a Lithuanian won't vote for a Pole, and a Pole won't vote for a Lithuanian, and a German won't vote for either of them, but all three will vote for a Turkey, an Irishman. Well, Sirmok, he climbed that political ladder, and the resentment of that party grew. And he was actually, even though they said to him, you're not going to go anywhere, you're not going to become anything, well, he swore revenge, and he formed his political army from non-Irish elements. And he even persuaded a black politician by the name of William Dawson to switch from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. Basically, he got these guys to all rally around him, and he won. He became mayor, um, which it was like this strange landslide thing. Unfortunately... Um, even though he he got to this level and he was voted in as mayor, despite everything that the city thought wouldn't be happening, um, he was shaking hands with uh, FDR in Miami, Florida, on February 15th, 1933, and he was shot in the lung. He died, his, he, was, he died, he lived, I think, a number of days. Um, the gentleman who was... Uh, picked up for firing that weapon was Giuseppe Zangara. He said he was trying to assassinate Roosevelt, but Cermak had made enemies in Chicago. And one of the enemies that he had made was with Al Capone. And he wanted to kind of clean those things up. And he didn't like, you know, Cermak didn't like this kind of rampant lawlessness bootlegging, uh, organized crime. Well, he was a threat to Al Capone. So I find it interesting that he was, you know, assassinated or shot in Florida. You remember Al Capone had his mansion in Florida. Um, And he was shot by Giuseppe Zangara. So was it an accident? We don't know. Um, But he did die. His actual cause of death was from complications due to colitis in hospital while he was recovering from the mortal wound to his lung. So that's what uh, Joey was referring to when she was talking about his uh, assassination and the things of that nature. And was he the target? She says, bottom line, it came out because of Helen Bowden's connections to information and the police wire. They felt, yes, the target bullet was aimed at Anton Cermak, They wanted that guy out of there. They didn't want him being mayor anymore. Had nothing to do with FDR. Capone wanted him out. 
Now, in the second uh, sentence of that, Joey followed up with uh, saying Al Smith was a Chicago, wasn't a Chicago mayor, but he was a U.S. politician running for mayor of New York. She said, quote, Al Smith didn't make it because he was a Catholic, and that's the only reason. So she was alluding to more corruption. The historical note on that is Alfred Emanuel Smith was an American politician. He served four terms as a governor of New York, um, and he was the Democratic Party's candidate for president in 1928. He was a very powerful urban leader, and he was the son of an Irish-American mother and a Civil War veteran father. He was a strong opponent, by the way, of uh, the prohibition. He was known as uh, a committed wet. So in those days, when you felt that the prohibition was kind of a joke, and it was really silly to be doing this, you were called a wet, probably because that means you were a drinker. So he was a committed wet, W-E-T. Um, and it is true what uh, Joey Bowden was saying, that the reason why his candidacy mobilized you know, all these Catholic voters, um, he was the first Catholic to be nominated by a major party. And the people who liked him the most were women who had just received that federal suffrage right vote. So now all these women are in the voting pool. Well, it also brought out a lot of anti-Catholic vote, which was especially strong among the white conservative Democrats in the South. And uh, he, he didn't make it. So Joey Bowden's uh, comment through her mother about, you know, Al, look at Al Smith. That was corrupt, too. He didn't make it because he was a Catholic. That, that is confirmed, actually. So there you have it on that. And one final note um, she had mentioned, uh, Joy Bowden had mentioned in that last episode that I did, which recapping eight, that she says, quote, on another note, George Bowden was a tax attorney and he had worked under Roosevelt and City Hall and was working with all these people. Uh, and he was Charlie Chaplin's tax attorney. And so I wanted to take that. I don't, you know, when I say something like that, I'm thinking, I really do need to confirm, if I can, was he Charlie Chaplin's tax attorney? I spent probably a day researching this, and I cannot find any place through any research in newspapers, documents, stories from family members who probably knew George K. Bowden better than I, that he ever had Charlie Chaplin as an attorney tax attorney. Charlie Chaplin had a lot of issues, quite frankly. He was sort of like a Roman Polanski. He would be 54, 60-something years old, and he'd be on his third or fourth wife, and the, the wives were always 18 years old. But he had income tax evasion issues. And George K. Bowden was a, a, just a very powerful, well-known tax expert. So to try to find out if this was true or if this was just family lore, the urban legend. I have to say I cannot confirm that he did this, that he represented Charlie Chaplin. Perhaps he was consulted by Charlie Chaplin or Charlie Chaplin's business individuals or whoever, but carrying him as his attorney, representing him, showing up in newspapers, representing him in the broad public base as an officer of the court for him, 
I don't see that in pleadings, documents, anything. So I'm going to dedicate another episode for you folks uh, regarding George K. Bowden because he is such an amazing man and he is a Bowden. So he's a part of our, our family on the Bowden clan. Um, and he's, he did a lot of things, a lot of work, and he is very, very well known all the way up to going to FDR's inaugural ceremony because he knew FDR and he ran his campaign. He was, I mean, he was, he had friends in very high places, let's just say. Um, but there are reasons why he got there so quickly and what he did. And so that'll be another episode for that. Uh, so that's pretty much the recap of episode eight for historical notes that I talked about that just didn't have a home in terms of more context around it for you. I think at this point, since I'm almost at 50 minutes, I'm going to let this episode go as it is. I'm going to open up the next episode, 10, with uh, the email that I received from Georgia Bowden, uh, Duncan, so that I can talk more about her question she had about Michael James Bowden, my grandfather. And then I'll go into the next uh, text writings of Joey Bowden for you as we move through each episode uh, and uh, enjoy learning about Chicago, learning about all these very curious and wonderful and um, exciting characters who live there uh, through the eyes of Joey. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I hope you all are staying well and staying quarantined and washing your hands, and I'll chat with you all very soon. Bye now.